Hey guys, welcome to the Bill Barnwell Show. I am Bill Barnwell. Today, I am the guest. Today, there's a mailbag episode of the show. But first, wanted to tell you about another podcast, which is done by the excellent Brian Windhorst and his pals in the Hoop Collective. Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective is a podcast where Brian Windhorst and a team of ESPN insiders sort out life in and around the NBA world. It's now airing three times a week and also available on YouTube. So listen on YouTube or listen wherever you are listening to The Bill Barnwell Show, which starts right now. All right, guys, I am in Australia. I am enjoying the Australian experience. I have seen various NFL jerseys and perhaps even a player or two while I've been here. But I wanted to kind of set the tone for this offseason and hit some of your questions with a mailbag. A lot to get to, of course, as we approach free agency and the draft and all that good stuff. So, We're going to hit your questions today, and I think there's honestly enough here for two shows. I think we may end up doing two mailbags based on how many good questions I got, but we'll start with a few of these here, and I think we'll start with a question I got more than any other one, and I think it makes total sense as to why I received it. Several people asked this. I'm just going to go with Stephen Herzog's question to start. Most people expect the Chicago Bears will trade down for defense and stock up on picks based on Justin Fields' improvement this year. But how seriously should they consider a quarterback at one? The answer is it's tough. I mean, there is no clear-cut answer to this problem. I think some of it has to do with what the Bears think about this quarterback class. If the Bears don't see a quarterback they love with the first overall pick, this is a academic conversation. You move ahead with Justin Fields. I would argue that unless you have a guy you really feel fondly about, you take the the opportunity to trade down, you keep Justin Fields. But let's go over kind of the things to think about here from a GM's perspective with Ryan Poles. And I don't know how much he's weighing these particular factors, but this is the stuff that comes to mind for me. First and foremost, of course, Justin Fields is now two years into his NFL career. The people who took him uh, are no longer with the organization. That was a Ryan Pace selection. Ryan Pace is gone. We don't know how Ryan Poles feels about Justin Fields. I I would argue, I don't think you take that job unless you at least are a little confident that you have a solution at quarterback, but we don't know. Certainly, I feel like Justin Fields showed plenty of positives last year and plenty of negatives. I'm inclined to think he's pretty good, or at least that he deserves another opportunity to start, but you're only getting him for one more year guaranteed on a cheap deal before you have to decide on his fifth-year option, which is going to be significant. That would be 2025, if I'm doing the math correctly in my head, which is not an insignificant amount of money. So if Justin Fields plays well next year, which is a good problem to have, Bears are extending him, they're not getting a lot more of a discount. Whereas if you draft a quarterback, if you take Bryce Young at the 101, you have three guaranteed cheap seasons from him before you have to even consider extending the Alabama star. So that is a legitimate factor and and a thing that the Bears will have to consider. Now, 
Of course, they're not locked into making a trade. They can evaluate their prospects. They can go to the combine. They can see if they love somebody. They don't have to make this decision right now. But I also wonder what the trade market will be for Justin Fields. Because, of course, Justin Fields has plenty of people who around the NFL who think he is a a star in the making who's been stuck behind dismal offensive lines with middling or worse receivers on teams that had no hope. And I don't think I would disagree with that all that much. I, I think there's the argument to be made that Justin Fields is a player who coming into the NFL, there were people who thought he was not a, a superstar quarterback in the making. I think, again, we saw him play pretty well in college. I, I wouldn't be one of those people. But we don't know what the market is for Justin Fields. I, I think it's whether you're going to make this trade or not, it behooves you if you're Ryan Poles to have conversations, see what someone's willing to offer you. Hey, if the, the Falcons want to offer you the eighth overall pick for Justin Fields, that's very different than shopping Justin Fields and only landing you know, a, a late first round pick or a high second round pick. Very different scenarios there. But if, if you keep Justin Fields... Actually, no, let's go about this the other way. If, if you do draft a quarterback at the 101 and trade Justin Fields, you are getting something back for Fields, presumably. Let's say a late one, I think, is the most likely scenario. But you're incurring the opportunity cost of passing up the opportunity to trade down, which is going to get you multiple first-round picks in the most likely scenario. Again, so many teams in this draft who would plausibly trade up for that pick from the Chicago Bears, whether it's the Texans at two who are getting, uh, you know, who are, who are going to be in a position where they won't get the quarterback of their choosing unless they move up, the Colts at four where you've had Jim Irsay already come out and say he likes Bryce Young, um, the Raiders at seven, the Falcons at eight, the Panthers at nine, the Titans at 11, the Jets at 13, the Commanders at 16. All of these teams could plausibly tell themselves, we have to move up to the 101, get ahead of the Texans. Uh, Texans can't say that, but get ahead of whoever might be trading ahead of the Texans and go out and get our guy. And that's going to cost a lot. If it's the Colts, maybe it's only a one and a three or something like that. If it's the Commanders, it's three first-round picks. And if you're the Bears, you're foregoing that haul to go out and get your quarterback of the future. So when you think about this, the question is this to me. What would you rather have? Would you rather have Justin Fields with a year, maybe two cheap years left on his deal if you are willing to pick up the option or decline the option? A top defensive lineman who they would probably get in that four spot and at least one more first round pick, probably I would say two if they can play their cards right. Or a young quarterback with four cost controlled years left if we're going by that four year standard and absolutely nothing else. To me, I think you can only go for that latter deal if you think he is a, if not a can't-miss prospect, at least a extremely likely prospect to succeed, and you're very skeptical on Justin Fields. I just think the math is in your favor to go out and trade down, whether it's to 4, 7, 8, 9, 12, or 13, 16, get the multiple first-round picks, and trust that the guy you you were arriving to this organization to build around, we'll do better next year with more pieces around him. 
Similar question from Rod Blunk. He asked about the Bears trading down from the first overall pick. Could they possibly get star veterans in a swap down as opposed to draft picks because of their cap space? Could they get Marquise Brown or DeAndre Hopkins from the Cardinals? DeForest Buckner, a Matt Eberflus favorite from the Colts, or Max Crosby from the Raiders? And uh, I'm less likely to think this is a good idea. Not Crosby, of course, for cap reasons. Uh, they could get Hopkins. They could get Brown. But even though those guys would help the Bears develop their quarterback, whether it's Fields or whether it is uh, another quarterback, they're not one veteran receiver away from being contenders. And they already traded that that pick at the very end, very top of the second round, technically the 32nd pick, which is usually a first-round selection. They traded that for Chase Claypool. I didn't love that trade at the time. Doesn't look great now. Could turn out to be fine. Obviously, Chase Claypool is a very talented guy when he is right. He has not been right for the past couple of years. I just don't think the veterans who get thrown into these sorts of trades typically turn into difference makers. I I would almost rather have a, a young player who has years left in his deal. Like maybe if they asked for Alec Pierce from the Colts as part of a, a indie trade, I would almost rather have that than Hopkins, strangely. But, you know, certainly if the Bears want to go after someone like Hopkins as part of a trade, it's not out of the realm of possibility. But I don't, I don't see the Cardinals trading up here from three to one with Kyler Murray uh, in the mix at, 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 you know, at, at quarterback for the Cardinals for years to come. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8-S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. Swimming Tuturo? I think that's correct. I hope that's not something inappropriate. Um, As I root for an AFC team. That does not have Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Trevor Lawrence, or Lamar Jackson under center. Please give me hope because it's very hard to watch the playoffs and come away thinking any other team has a realistic shot. And of course, it is easier to win the Super Bowl when you have one of those dudes where it's a a, a MVP ceiling caliber quarterback. But we have seen examples in the past where guys have made it to the Super Bowl and won without that kind of typical ceiling in front of them on their resume. Think about Joe Flacco, right? He won the Super Bowl. That was 2011, 2012, 2012. I think the Giants were 2011. I'm pretty sure Flacco and the Ravens were 2012. He won the Super Bowl in a conference where the AFC had Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, who was playing very well for the Broncos, Andrew Luck, who was a rookie that year, they beat in the, uh, they beat Luck and Manning. They beat Brady too. They beat Luck and Manning that year, for sure in the AFC playoffs. But Luck, Manning, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, uh, th- that's a pretty scary group of quarterbacks. No, they weren't all necessarily playing at their best, but that is still a a, a bunch of quarterbacks that you know, are going to make it to the Hall of Fame or would have made it to the Hall of Fame if they had continued to play or been able to stay healthy. Um, 
they beat Brady. They so that they beat they beat Luck, Payton, and Brady en route to the Super Bowl that year as a a ten and six Ravens team. Not even the best Ravens team of that era. And Ryan Tannehill comes to mind for me. He came within a half, really, of advancing to the Super Bowl three years ago, and he beat Brady in New England in the final Tom Brady game. MVP Lamar Jackson in a game where they were huge underdogs in Baltimore. And was they were ahead of Mahomes in the first half of that game against the Chiefs before Mahomes took over. So it wasn't like Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee did not have a shot of winning that, that, that AFC bracket. Now, granted, it was mostly Derrick Henry, and the defense played really well that postseason until Mahomes got going. But that is, that's going to be the blueprint for a team that doesn't have that kind of quarterback. It's not having dominant quarterback play and competing on quarterback play, although Flacco did play incredible during that postseason. But just to kind of, you know, have a quarterback who gets hot, protects the football, and then you win games as a more complete team than maybe some of these other teams. And that actually leads to a question from Brad Uton, who asks about the Bills. And he says, Bills fans seem to be in crisis mode. How much of that is just the last game? And how much of it is warranted? Last year, most thought they had one of the deepest rosters, but now their depth is non-existent after the Von Miller injury. And this is one of those questions where there's a little bit of truth to both sides. I think Bills fans have certainly been, the expectations have been raised. I'm trying to say this nicely. Uh, expectations have been raised. Of course, Bills fans want to win. They have not won a Super Bowl. They have not won a, a, a they have not made it to the Super Bowl in quite a long time. And I think we're all rooting for the Bills to get there, uh, even, you know, us neutrals. Um, and, 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 expectations this year are very high. A lot of people, myself included, picked them to win the Super Bowl before the year. I I think the Bills have one of the most talented rosters in football. And a lot of other teams, a lot of other fan bases around the NFL would kill to have Buffalo's depth and talent profile. Are they as deep as they were two to three years ago? No, but that's because they've had to pay so many of their young superstar players. Most teams don't have that caliber of talent. They don't have a Josh Allen to pay. They don't have a Tredavious White to pay. They don't have a Matt Milano to pay. They would love to have those guys. That is a good problem to have that you don't have depth or the depth you used to have because you've developed young superstars. And I would say part of the problem here is that the quality of their drafts, which were so good early in the McDermott, Brandon Bean era, have slowed down. Go to 2019. Ed Oliver, a good player, maybe a very good player at times. Probably not the ninth best player in that draft. Cody Ford, second round pick at 38, did not pan out. Devin Singletary and Dawson Knox, their other top 100 picks, fine players. Dawson Knox was very good in 2021, but not guys who were huge difference makers. In 2020, they used their first-round pick on Stephon Diggs. No questions there. But after that, it was AJ Epinesa and Zach Moss, other top 101 picks. They're both backups. Moss, of course, traded uh, last year. In 2021, their top 100 picks were Gregory Rousseau, Boogie Basham, and Spencer Brown. And in a perfect world, Rousseau and Basham were their starting defensive ends, but Basham didn't show enough as a rookie, and that led them to sign Von Miller. Rousseau is obviously a very good player, but you know, you're hoping for more from your second round pick there. And then last year you have stacks of injuries, especially in the secondary. I mean, it's one thing to lose a guy here or there and losing Von Miller obviously was a bummer, but they were down to backups in the second half of that game against the Bengals across the board in the secondary. 
not sure how much of that you could have anticipated. Now, the other thing to come up here with the Von Miller deal is that it was a departure for Bean and the Bills. It was an all-in strike. You have to position it that way and be realistic. This That's not the kind of move the Bills have typically made in free agency. They have typically been a team that wants to shop in the middle of the pack, sign guys who are useful players, who are going to be starters, who are going to be steady contributors for mid-tier money. And they certainly don't have more money now than they did three or four years ago when they were building that way around Josh Allen. But they saw Von Miller as the last piece of a Super Bowl team. They took a risk guaranteeing him three years as part of his contract, which some other teams were not willing to do. That's what they had to do to get this deal done. And We'll see what happens, but certainly Von Miller tearing his ACL halfway through his first season was not part of the plan here in Buffalo. So I don't fault them for taking that shot, but that's the risk of when you go out and sign a player who's in his mid-30s who had just had an incredible postseason to this sort of long-term big money contract. The Bills have kind of avoided that deal, and it it came back to haunt them here. Leo Talbot asks a very different kind of question. Is there enough talent at key positions, e.g. quarterback, for the NFL to consider expansion? Seems to me that 36 teams makes the most sense for scheduling reasons, but would that stretch the talent too thin? This is one of my pet peeves, and not Leo's fault here. Leo is, is correct here. I hate it when I hear people say, oh, there's there's not enough quarterbacks to go around. There's not 32 good quarterbacks to play in the NFL. You know what? Maybe there's not. But you know what else I might think is true? We just might not be very good at picking quarterbacks and offensive coordinators and coaches. I don't know that we have earned the right to say, yes, we are the we being people around the NFL, whether it's analysts, whether it's executives, coaches, that we have exhibited the ability to actually pick the best quarterbacks for the 32 starting opportunities. And I think we saw that last year with Geno Smith, right? I mean, Geno Smith was a guy who was bouncing around the league as a backup. He was sort of a meme. He played a couple games for the Seahawks and was fine, but not necessarily a starting caliber quarterback. Seattle, there's a ton of credit for bringing him back and having him start and he led them to the postseason. They thought Drew Locke was going to be their starter. They traded for Drew Locke thinking he was going to be their guy before Geno Smith was even back with the team. He was in free agency for a a stretch of time before they brought him back to compete with Drew Locke with the idea that Drew Locke was going to be their number one. Geno Smith in a bigger league gets an opportunity elsewhere. Maybe he gets an opportunity three years ago and proves he can be that guy. And I don't believe that Geno Smith is the only quarterback who would prove that he is a a solid player and a worthwhile NFL starter if given the opportunity. There's just, when I hear that 32 good quarterbacks argument, what it is is this idea that there's not 32 six foot four white guys with prototypical size and arm strength who are NFL caliber quarterbacks. Yes, if you are stretching to the Brock Osweilers or Davis Millses of the world, yes, you are going to come up short. But I do believe there's more useful quarterbacks than we think. And that would get us closer to 36. Maybe it's 28. Maybe it's 30. Maybe a team or two runs the option or runs something similar to what the Falcons did this year. But at the end of the day, I don't think we're about to come up with an expansion team anytime soon anyway. I don't think the NFL has any desire to split their revenue wider when it comes to being an owner of this within this league. So unless you have... 
I don't know. Mark Cuban was always the guy, but I don't think it's Mark Cuban. Unless you have somebody, you have Mark Zuckerberg, who wants to pay $5 billion as an expansion fee towards the end of the next TV deal. If it looks like the next TV deal is going to be stagnant or, or a drop back, I don't think expansion is coming anytime soon for the National Football League. McNamara Dynasty asks, how many veteran quarterbacks on a veteran deal are better investments than a quarterback on a rookie deal? And part of the problem with this question is that we don't know how good that rookie quarterback is, right? I mean, is it a third-round pick? Is it a seventh-round pick? Is it the first overall pick in the draft? To try and come up with an answer, I went and I looked at every first-round pick at quarterback over the last decade and then used their weighted approximate value from pro football reference per season. The average first-round quarterback over the last decade of drafts is Jameis Winston. So if you take a quarterback in the first round, I guess if you're avoiding like the bottom half of the first round, maybe if you're looking at the top half of the first round, your average expectation is Jameis Winston, who, I mean, Jameis Winston was fine at times. He was bad at times. He was not the solution for Tampa, but I don't know that he was always the problem either. But if we're going to ask how many veteran quarterbacks on veteran deals would I rather have than Jameis Winston for four years on a rookie deal, Jameis Winston would still offer pretty significant surplus value. If he's making six, seven, eight million dollars a year, he's still going to be worth low end starter money, which is 20, 25 million a year. So you're still making a lot of money. So you're asking who is going to be worth 13, 15, 17 million dollars more a year than what they get paid. And that's not a big group. Mahomes, obviously, Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers. A bunch of guys will get there on their, their deals over the summer. Joe Burrow, Jalen Hurts, uh, Justin Herbert. I don't know if two is signing a contract because of his injuries, but those three guys, uh, even if they get $50 million a year, I'm still comfortable picking those guys. I would probably throw Dak out there. I don't know if everyone else feels that way, but I mean, Deshaun Watson's on that group right now. Matthew Stafford is not in that group right now. Russell Wilson is definitely not in that group right now, so... I wouldn't, I'm, I'm maybe, unless I'm forgetting somebody, and I'm sure I'll get yelled at if I'm forgetting somebody, but I think that's kind of the core group of guys where anyone who's worse than that, I don't know that I'd rather have than a, a average quarterback on a rookie deal just because you get the opportunity to spend so much money elsewhere on your roster. Andrew Termer asks, Will we ever get an explanation for why Bill Belichick was happy to sacrifice a season and crucial development for Mac Jones because he wanted to prioritize his mates over the team? The Patricia decision still makes no sense a year on. I will try to explain it. I don't know that you'll be happy with my explanation, but I do think that Bill Belichick, very clearly based on his hiring, wants to and has the ability to hire a staff of people he trusts. The Patriots staff is almost entirely people Belichick coached as players, had on his staff, or are his family members. The OC candidates they brought in to interview this offseason almost all fit that bill as well. And then he hired one in Bill O'Brien, who used to coach for him, used to coach for Belichick, I should say, in New England. Is this different from other teams? Probably. I think Belichick... At this point of his career, I don't know that he wants to have his friends around, but I think he doesn't want to have to teach people to coach a particular way. And I think he's earned that right. The defense certainly has no problems being coached by Gerard Mayo and various Belichick children. That seems to be going fine for them. But 
Belichick's not the only person to do this, right? I, I thought about Andy Reid, who, of course, has just won his second Super Bowl, rightfully being lauded as one of the great coaches of this generation. Remember, he moved Juan Castillo from offensive line coach to defensive coordinator. It didn't go well. Castillo was fired shortly thereafter, and Reid followed him out the door. But good coaches will tell you that if you're a good coach, if you understand the game, you can coach. There are plenty of coaches who move around different positional jobs on one side of the ball and do a good job with each. Kevin Stefanski comes to mind as someone who coached different positional roles for the Vikings before becoming an OC and then a head coach with the Cleveland Browns. Kyle Shanahan will tell you that being a good offensive coach, the thing that makes him a great coach is understanding defenses and being able to break down the rules in each of those defenses. And Belichick probably thought, hey, Matt Patricia understands defenses very well. He'll have ways to break down those defenses with what they do on the offensive side of the ball. And I think Bill Belichick played a bigger role in this offense than maybe publicly we're suggesting or we know about. Now, whether Patricia's a good coach and the way that I'm describing is up for debate, obviously it didn't work out. And I think the Patriots are smart to go in a different direction. I think it will benefit all of them uh, in terms of Belichick, Bill O'Brien, Mac Jones. I think everyone's going to be happier this upcoming season. Different sort of team, different situation, slightly better offense. The Cincinnati Bengals, a couple questions here. Dan Berger asks, how will the Bengals handle the contracts of Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and T. Higgins? Will they be able to keep all three or should they? I'm a little surprised that we're having conversations about the Bengals and what they should do with T. Higgins this year. I don't think anybody is suggesting correctly. Joe Burrow's about to leave. Jamar Chase not up for an extension yet. T. Higgins has kind of come up as the person who the Bengals might sacrifice to keep uh, Burrow and Chase around. I don't think you should do that. I think you build your team around those core three guys. In terms of the talent on the field, they spent a lot of draft capital on those guys, and they've won. They made it to the Super Bowl, went back to the playoffs this year. So it's not a situation where you need to close your eyes and and you know imagine what it might look like for them to win. They were winning. They came within a few plays of winning the Super Bowl with a pretty terrible offensive line and a defense that was good, but certainly not great. So I'm, I'm inclined to think that you keep those guys around. Of course, they're going to be a lot more expensive. They're going to be making $100 million a year between the three of them by 2024, but they could also get better. Joe Burrow has been great, but still some holes in his game. He's gotten better over the first three years of his career. T. Higgins has missed some time here and there. Jamar Chase has missed some time here and there. They could be, they could improve. They could be on the field for 16, 17 games a year. They could be, you know, one of the best duos in the history of football. And I wouldn't rule that possibility out. I would just say that when you're building your roster and you're signing guys to contracts, when you're signing your veterans, you want to hopefully sign guys to deals where you can get surplus value, where you can have a player who's making X and worth more than X. Joe Burrow is, of course, that player. Jamar Chase feels like that player. I still think T. Higgins is a better option or a more likely player to deliver surplus value than most of the other players on this roster. And of course, you'll have to make sacrifices. Tyler Boyd, probably going to leave when he's a free agent. Hayden Hurst is a free agent this year. Tough to see him coming back. And as this boom blah asks, what are the chances that Joe Mixon and or Samaje Pirine are Bengals in September? And I would say, 
I think one of the two comes back, but I don't think both. P. Ryan is a UFA. Mixon has a $12 plus million cap hit. And the problem for the Bengals is that they got a lot of defensive free agents coming up. This year, it's Jesse Bates, Von Bell, Jermaine Pratt, and Eli Apple. The next year, Trey Hendrickson, DJ Reader, and Shadobi Awuzie. You, you're going to have to lose some of those guys. That's just the reality of, of, of building around that core of talent at quarterback and receiver. And I think they should recognize they're going to have to. There's nothing wrong with having to make some cutbacks. But you may also want to cut back at running back. You may not want to sign P. Ryan to a $6, 7000000 million a year deal. You may not want to pay Joe Mixon what he's being paid. So I, I know the Bengals really value Mixon. I think people around the league really value Mixon in a way that maybe people on the outside don't. I think he's sort of seen as like a... A, a true three down back, which, you know, I think Purine's a pretty good third down back. So I, I don't know that I would make that feel that way myself, but certainly heard that about Joe Mixon. I wouldn't be surprised if Purine left and Mixon was here for one more year. And then maybe in 2023, they move on. Maybe they draft 2024, they move on. Maybe they draft a running back here in the 2023 draft as maybe a, a Mixon replacement. But I, I think that I would guess Mixon is back. In September, and P. Ryan is somewhere else. Another team debating about a trading a possible superstar. Alex Washburn asks if the Rams believe they can win this upcoming season, why would they trade Jalen Ramsey? It's a good question. I, to me, I don't think they're going to. If I'm being entirely honest with you, but I do believe that if you look at what the Rams do philosophically, they want to have superstar players entering. And in the prime of their careers, they like trading for guys on rookie deals, including one Jalen Ramsey himself. They like trading for guys who are about to get extensions. They trade for guys who are entering their peak seasons. Jalen Ramsey's 29 this year. He's turning 29, and corners after 30 can be a grab bag. Some of them age like wine. Some of them age like, no, wine, you get a Trader Joe's, and then you leave out for a week. Um... It doesn't always go great. And if I'm being honest, I think Jalen Ramsey's skill set will age pretty well. But right now, he has three years left in his contract. So whether he's asking for a new deal now or whether he's about to ask for one or whether he's going to ask for one next year, I think we're getting to a point where Jalen Ramsey is going to want a new deal. And that's going to be covering most likely ages 30, 31, 32, Years where cornerbacks are typically, not always, but typically declining. On top of that, league plays more zone than ever before. Rams play a version of the Vic Fangio defense. They play plenty of zone. And, and of course, there's matching concepts. You have Jalen Ramsey playing in the star role at times. You have him playing man, you know, on the backside of cover three when they, they want to have him playing one-on-one. Jalen Ramsey is not a typical zone corner. But if you are playing a lot of zone, and your pass rush kind of stinks, which they didn't have a great pass rush for most of last year. Is paying Jalen Ramsey the best use of your resources? Or are you better off using that money and some of the draft capital you get for Ramsey to go out and add a star pass rusher to the mix on the edge? Fair question. To me, I think Ramsey stays. But I think next year there's more serious conversations. I'm just thinking about the, this is the same guy who, in spectacularly hilarious fashion, um, rolled up to Jaguars camp in a Brinks truck and had a, had a hype man on a megaphone 
insisting that Tom Coughlin give Jalen Ramsey a new deal. I knew when that happened. He was not long for Tom Coughlin in Jacksonville. Worked out fine for him in the long run, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Jalen Ramsey. I think he's a Hall of Fame player, so I would keep him around, but the Rams have a reputation fairly earned, and they've done a very good job with it, of, of making decisions that necessarily are aggressive. Apt667 asks about the coaching situation on the NFL. He says, with Denver hiring Sean Payton, at $18 million a year, and there being no salary cap on coaches, is the next big spike in salaries coming for the coaching circles? Andy Reid at $12 million a year seems like a bargain. Now, I've written about this. Wrote about it last season. I think I did it during the offseason. Because it was really a response to the college football deals that were coming out. And yes, not every NFL coach wants to go out and recruit, does not want to have the college football experience, does not want to have to deal with teenagers um, on the football field. There are NFL coaches who are too old for that stuff, who just want to deal with adults. And, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's the same sport, but it's a different game, if that makes any sense. And that may not be a leverage play for them, but for the guys who are willing to, I don't know how you can ask them to coach for $7 million a year on a three, four, five-year deal when Mel Tucker is on 10 years and $95 million at Michigan State. Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly, guys who are good coaches, obviously very good coaches, but not necessarily the Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney's of the world are making more than that. Like, you know, these are guys who were on longer contracts than any NFL coach by a significant margin. That Mel Tucker deal was like the coaching equivalent of the Christian Kirk contract for the Jaguars. Mel Tucker, of course, former Jaguars assistant. NFL teams are going to have to compete with that because there are going to be coaches who approach the end of their deal and say, hey, if I'm willing to go back to college football, I'm going to double what I make and get a contract for 10 years. I don't know that Cliff Kingsbury wanted to go back to school, but when the Oklahoma rumors were happening, I'm not surprised he threw his name in the ring and got a new deal out of it from the Cardinals uh, in the process. No, I'm not sure Andy Reid is making $12 million a year. And I will tell you that Bill Belichick is making a lot of money. I think Bill Belichick is making more than any coach at any level. I would guess that the number starts, it's either in the high 20s or the low 30s a year for Bill Belichick. But I don't think anybody really knows besides Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft. And I will also say that the uncapped argument, which is valid and I've brought it up in the past, I don't know how much it means for non-head coaches because the value of coordinators and positional coaches have to fit within the context of your scheme and your head coach. But I think about the Eagles who tried to build a dream team of assistants a decade ago under Andy Reid. It didn't work out. I think they had Jim Washburn, Howard Mudd. Like they had they had dudes who were Hall of Fame caliber coaches for positions, and it did not work out. It was a mess. Everyone got fired. Not ideal. Um but 
I will say that I think coaches are, are going to be in a position to make more money. I think anyone who is going to play that college leverage is going to get more. I think teams are not naive to you know how much value these guys have. Like I think if you're a smart organization and you can get you can't get Andy Reid. Let's say you could get Andy Reid for twelve million dollars a year, or Corey Davis. Like Andy Reid's going to help you win a Super Bowl a lot more than Corey Davis is going to. So I do think we're going to see a league where every coach is making at least every head coach is making at least ten million per year. Um, you know, I think we're going to see teams who pay important assistants a lot of money. Um, was it Brandon Gann? I think it was. It was. Uh, I think it was Brandon Gannon who said that the Eagles offered him more, not Brandon Gannon, um, Jonathan Gannon, excuse me. I'm getting my Eagles coaches confused. I think Jonathan Gannon came out and said that the Eagles offered him more money to stay as a defensive coordinator than he would have been making as a head coach. Again, that could just be coach talk. I could also be the wrong person. If so, I apologize, but, um, you get the idea. Like if you have a a really genius coordinator or a really genius offensive line coach, nothing's stopping you from offering them five, six, seven million dollars a year to stay. Bill Callahan, the offensive line coach for the Browns, should be making eight million dollars a year. Um, so I, I'm, I think there's going to be more more variance as these guys get more money, and I think teams are going to be more aggressive, but. I think that's something that's coming from the college football ranks more than what Sean Payton was getting from the Denver Broncos. Talked about the Eagles. Um, Alex M. asks, is Reed Blankenship good enough to start for the Eagles uh, and for them to bring back C.J. Gardner-Johnson as their number two cornerback? Or is it better to let C.J. G.J. walk and pay Bradbury with Blankenship taking over as a starting safety. First off, just want to say how much I respect C.J. Gardner-Johnson. Don't want to get yelled at. Don't want to get insulted. Don't want to get uh, him coming at me on Twitter. Uh, don't need that during the offseason. Just want to put that out there. Absolute respect. Don't want to be critical. Please turn the podcast off. No, he's a good player. And he's a good player, but I think he's probably best as a safety I think the Eagles were worse with Blankenship out there. I think especially in space, he was not as effective of an operator. Um, Garner-Johnson, I think, is just better in space. And I think if he is going to be a cornerback, he's best as a slot corner. And that's where Avante Maddox was playing for the Eagles last year. And I think he's very good in that slot corner role. So I think you have two guys for one spot there. Now, is it out of the question that CJ Garner-Johnson could move outside and be an effective outside cornerback? No. We've seen Casey Hayward do that in the past. Um, who was the guy who was on the Eagles? Was it Al Harris? Al, I think it was Al Harris who was a slot corner who then moved outside and had a long career on the outside as well for the Packers. Um, a generation ago. I was in college then, so I apologize. I can't remember every single player's name. But I think C.J. Gardner-Johnson could do it, but the Saints didn't think he could do it or else they would have signed. They would have had him play outside corner instead of uh, Paulson and Debo were the various guys they had out there. Uh, to me, I think if you're bringing him back, it's as a safety. And that means you're probably finding another solution at cornerback. I, you know, I'm inclined to think that James Bradbury, who again is, I think, 29 at this point, very good player, had a career year. I would expect him to leave. I expect the Eagles to kind of go with a cheaper solution at, at corner and maybe keep Gardner Johnson instead to play safety. 
Um, but we will see. I think there's there's definitely different ways Howie Roseman could go. Mitch Gratert, uh, Mitch, Mitch Gratert asks, this is the next to last one on this episode. Mitch Gratert asks, what's stopping the Chiefs from trading for Brandon Ayuk with his fifth-year option approaching on an expensive roster? And I think the answer is the 49ers, right? I mean, Brandon Ayuk, I could see why people would say he's a plausible trade candidate. The Niners are spending a lot on their playmakers on offense. Christian McCaffrey is making uh, top-tier running back money. George Kittle's making upper echelon tight end money. Debo Samuel's on a big deal. Trent Williams, the highest-paid tackle in football. They have a lot of money committed to key players. And then, of course, their relationship with Brandon Ayuk was hot and cold. He really was in the doghouse early in his second season, had to fight his way back. I think it's better now. But, you know, he goes missing at times, not always a a week-to-week contributor. And the Niners could use the trade uh, compensation. They probably would get a first-round pick for Ayuk in return, I think. He's a young player entering the prime of his career. He's been very good on a a per-out basis. But I also think Kyle Shanahan just wants as many playmakers as possible. And there's a chance they have Brock Purdy playing quarterback for a million bucks per year over the next three seasons. I think the Chiefs, looking at their roster in the years to come, I kind of feel like they're a team that might think they're a landing spot for every single Juju Smith-Schuster style player who wants to sign a one-year deal and rebuild their value in free agency. Odell Beckham could be that guy this year for them. They've also used a second-round pick on Sky Moore. They just traded significant capital for Kadarius Toney. Those guys are going to be in the offseason picture. I think they've probably cut Marquez Valdez-Scantling this offseason. I don't know that Juju comes back. Of course, they're going to have to eventually replace Travis Kelsey, but he's still going strong at, at 34 years old. But, you know, I, I don't know that they're inclined to make a fr- trade a first-round pick for Brendan Ayuk, and I think that's what it would take. So could see Ayuk being traded. Don't think it's very likely, but if it does happen, would be surprised if it's the Chiefs. So I'm going to finish up with this one from Corey Zaldan. Uh, I think I got a lot of questions about this as well, so I'll finish up with this one. Um, He asks, who other than the Giants would make any type of a multi-year offer to Daniel Jones north of $25 million per season? Any offer higher than that from the Giants makes it seem like they're bidding against themselves. Where do I start? I mean, yes, people know I grew up as a Giants fan. Of course, I pay close attention to the franchise. I get a lot of questions about Daniel Jones. I get people who know me from the media asking about Daniel Jones. I get people who are my friends in the media who know I'm a Giants fan asking about Daniel Jones. I get people who are my friends from growing up from high school and college saying, hey, what are the Giants going to do here? They have to sign him, right? And then I see Daniel Jones is being linked to a contract for $45 million per year. And I think, is there more than one Daniel Jones? Did I not see Daniel Jones last year? Maybe I missed the tape. I'm pretty sure I watched all those Giants games. I'll I'll start with this. I don't buy the $45 million a year stuff. It feels like someone got in his ear and told him he can make that much, and he is switching agents. So clearly, if that's the $45 million a year number is accurate, clearly that's the number that they think he can get. I don't know why. So if the Giants want to go year to year, 
they could tag him for $31 million next year and $37.2 million in 2024. So that is your baseline for what Daniel Jones would have to try and top in a long-term deal. Because the Giants can get him for $68.2 million for the next two years, go year to year, see what he can do, see if he can stay healthy, see if he's not throwing the shortest passes in football, see if he's more than just you know, uh, Kirk Cousins with legs or Jimmy Garoppolo with, with moves. Like, I don't think that it's even those guys. Like, I, I think he's a worse passer than those guys, but a better runner. So maybe if they get more around him at receiver, maybe it changes. But I am inclined to think that Daniel Jones will turn the ball over more than he did in 2022. So the idea that he's going to get $45 million a year when they can get $68 million or four, they, Ninety million over the first two years of his new deal, when he can get him for sixty-eight with franchise tags, just does not make sense. That's just not how contracts work. So if the Giants do that, they're crazy. I don't think they're going to. Now, the question that I was asked by Corey was, who would give Jones more than twenty-five million dollars per year in free agency? Because the Giants can sit here and say, "Hey, we're going to franchise Saquon. You go off, see what you can get on the market. If you get it, great, good for you. We're going to move on." I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to sign Saquon and franchise Daniel Jones. But would someone give him more than $25 million a year? I kind of think the answer is yes, because think about how many teams we know are going to be in the market for a quarterback. The Texans at two, the Colts at four. This is Let's assume the Bears are not drafting a quarterback because they'll need a quarterback as well. But we'll say Texans at two, Colts at four, Raiders at seven, Falcons at eight, Panthers at nine, Jets at 13, Commanders at 16, Bucks at 19, Giants at 25, Saints at 29. All of those teams are going to add a quarterback this offseason. And there aren't enough rookies with first-round grades, plus the combo of Rodgers, Garoppolo, and Daniel Jones. To go around. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten teams with three veteran quarterbacks. Again, we're not thinking Geno Smith is out there. I didn't name the Seahawks, but three veteran quarterbacks. There's not seven first round graded quarterbacks out there. So one of those teams, or maybe two of those teams, are going to be left with the empty chair at quarterback. If you're one of those teams, I do think you're giving Daniel Jones more than $25 million a year. I might even think one of those teams gives him two franchise taxes as a guarantee, and they give him $34 million a year. But would I want to be that team? Mm, I think you can probably sense that I'm a little skeptical. So we will see what happens with Daniel Jones and the New York Giants. A big game of chicken playing out in the media and in contract negotiations. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed the first half of this mailbag episode. We will have more coming next week. I have more of your questions. A lot to get to still. So many quarterbacks, so many other situations, so much happening here in the offseason. So hope you guys enjoy this one and more coming next week.